ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Incredibly, a week 15 Peter King Podcast. Miles Simmons, where has the time gone? And I'm going to be joined by my buddy Miles Simmons from NBC Sports. And um, we have a lot to get to. Probably as entertaining and as odd and as weird a Monday night as we've seen in a long, long time. First of all, you know, the fact that there were two games that started at the same time on sister networks, which just seems totally bizarre, but I can tell you why it happened. Um, And then uh, we have a guest, Jake Browning, uh, the uh, quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals and all he's done the last two weeks in playoff caliber games playoff implication games, I should say, is put up 34 points in each game. So we're going to talk to Jake Browning right in the middle of the pod. And then at the end of the pod, we're going to get into, uh, or part two of the pod, we're going to get into where are the Kansas City Chiefs right now and where is Patrick Mahomes right now, as well as a little pet theory I've had on quarterbacks in the NFL for a long time about why on God's green earth is there a race every year to go get the latest, big, great, shiny object? And why, if I'm the Chicago Bears, it's not even a tough decision right now, unless Justin Fields spits the bit in the last four weeks. I'm not taking Drake May or Caleb Williams. I'm trading that pick for three ones. Let somebody else come up and get get a guy, and then let him get beat up for a few years, see if he can survive. Anyway, that's going to be uh, in part two of the pod. Miles Simmons, good morning. You have had a very active morning here as we record on Tuesday morning. You're on the West Coast. You've done pro football talk. You had to get up at 3.30. After staying up for the football games, you must be wrung out like a dish rag this morning. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, Peter. I don't know what time it is, man. It's 9.09 uh, Eastern, which is <laughs> what I got to go by, you know, when it's days like this. And I will issue one correction. I woke up at 3.05 this morning, actually probably 3.04. I think I woke up a minute before my alarm, shut the alarm off because why hear wow. that if you don't need to? So yeah, but I got my five hour. What do you do going? when you get up? Do you, do you make... <laughs> do you make coffee or what do you do? You take five hour energy. 
Yeah, it's uh, the the process for me is a breakfast bar that I actually store underneath the bed so I don't have to get up and go find them. I like reach down, grab it, you know, and eat that. Then take about half a five hour energy, then sandwich that with another breakfast bar and I'm ready to go, man. I'm it's that's all I need. No uh, coffee. I'm not a really big coffee guy. I do like well, a I macchiato pr- though. Yeah, I appreciate you pulling marathon duty. So let's get into it. Um, I'm going to tell you the thought I had at 11.15, 11.30 on Monday night. And it's a thought I am sure nobody else has had, but this is what hit me. That the road to the top seed in the NFC playoffs goes through Tommy DeVito. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, if the Philadelphia Eagles, as bad as they've played recently, do you realize in the last three games, their defense, two-thirds of the drives by their foes, two-thirds have resulted in scores, 13 touchdowns, nine field, or six field goals, 19 of 30, that's 30%. But so that is a gigantic concern going down the stretch of your season. You want to be playing your best when the games count the most? And the Eagles are not playing their best. But if they sweep down the stretch, there's nothing anybody can do. If they sweep down the stretch, they win the NFC East and the Dallas Cowboys uh, you know, are going to be the, um, you know, the number one, uh, the Dallas Cowboys will be the number five seed. So, and, and I, and I bring this up miles because if you think about it and I know it's going to sound crazy because it is crazy, but it's possible down the stretch of this season. I mean, the Cowboys have a very difficult schedule next two weeks. They're at Buffalo, at Miami, to have a chance to win the one seed in the NFC, they've probably got to win both of those games because you look at the other teams who they're fighting for the number one seed right now, and it's going to be very, very difficult. But as of now, obviously, the San Francisco 49ers, if they win out down the stretch, they go 4-0, they are the number one seed. So the DeVito thing is not necessarily gospel, but I'm only thinking this, that if the Philadelphia Eagles win out, then they will win the NFC East. And if San Francisco stumbles just once, Philly wins top seed in the NFC. So I want to talk a little bit about Tommy DeVito and you ask, you might ask if you're listening to this, why do you think that the road to the NFC East goes through DeVito? Well, in weeks 16 and 18 of this season, the, the, the third to last and last games of the season for the Eagles are against the Giants. The way the schedule falls this year, they don't play the Giants until week 16. And then they play him twice in the last three weeks. And normally you'd say, boy, good for the Eagles. That's fantastic. Because 
the Eagles right now are not playing well. But, and Tommy DeVito just has this rabbit's foot in his back pocket, um, probably covered in, uh, in red sauce and uh, with a cutlet on the side. But he's got this weird little karma going on right now that, you know, I don't know. The, the Green Bay Packers look like the, the 1990 Green Bay Packers. They're an old, terrible addition of the Packers. They were awful on Monday night in the Meadowlands. And Tommy DeVito swooped in at the end, that last drive. Miles, I, I, I guess I would just ask this about what we saw on Monday night. And let's start with Giants and Green Bay. Was that more of Green Bay being lousy or the Giants making them play lousy? I think part of it was just Green Bay was off. It just seemed like the things offensively in particular were a tick off. I mean, I I go back to the first series where Jordan Love's got a quick out on third and medium. It was third and four, third and three, whatever it was. And he just airmailed it on the left side. And that's just not the way that Jordan Love had been playing uh, over the last three games, three, four games or so. He was playing, I thought, something approaching elite ball, right? And then when you start that way, it's kind of like, whoa, what, what's going on here? And they cut to a shot of Matt LaFleur exactly. on the sideline, and he looked like, wait a minute, what was that? That's not the quarterback I've been calling plays for for the last few weeks. And things kind of snowballed from there. I mean, look, if not for Saquon Barkley's fumble, I mean, the Green Bay Packers would not have been in it in the second half. So the Packers' defense, on one hand, kind of let them down too, but – you know, you give Jordan Love credit for being able to come back, put the touchdown on the board late in the fourth quarter to give them the lead. Didn't get the two-point conversion, which obviously affected things at the end there. But, you know, I think some of it certainly was the Giants pressing things, right? Giants saying, hey, what do we have to lose? Let's go out there. Let's just go play a good football game. But also the Packers just did not play the kind of ball that they've been playing lately. And when those two things combine, this is the result that you get. You know, I really, coming into this game, I agreed with you. I agree with you that uh, I thought Jordan Love was, he had solidified his job. I don't think anybody in Green Bay, and I doubt anybody in Green Bay is that worried about him right now. But that was a totally, totally, it was a Zach Wilson kind of game. You know, (laughs) it was really just almost a nightmare game, really. Uh, for Jordan Love, if he had played, you know, if he had played a C minus game, the Packers would have won. He played maybe an F plus game, D minus. He was awful, and it wasn't just the balls that he missed; it's that he missed by a lot. Yeah. There was a play. Um, trying to think, it was either late second or early third where the clock pan or the uh, camera pan to Matt LaFleur on the sidelines. And it looked like somebody just whacked him in the back of the head with a two by four. He, he just was, he was in pain. He, and as you could tell, he's thinking, what are you seeing out there? So, you know, that's, that's the thing. Look, the Packers, the Packers, I thought coming into that game last night, I would have picked them as the six or seven seed in the NFC. 
because the NFC obviously is incredibly flawed. Um, yeah. You know, you don't look, it's the Cowboys in Philly. Uh, it's Detroit. I don't think it's going to be Minnesota. They could just have too many quarterback problems. One in the NFC South and maybe two in the NFC West. But there is a path for an NFC North team other than Detroit to make the playoffs. So, and I thought going into last night that Green Bay, you know, was going to be on that path. But anyway, so Green Bay now six and seven. Let's just look at Green Bay just for a second. I know there's a lot of Packer fans out there. Tampa Bay at home on Sunday. Then they're at Carolina. I think there's a very good chance that they enter the last two weeks of the season eight and seven. And the last two weeks, problematic. Week 17, New Year's weekend at Minnesota. That's a playoff game. Yeah, That is a playoff game. That's going to be perhaps the game of the weekend that weekend. And I know that there are going to be better games, but I'm talking about <clears throat> for just survival. You know, week 17, Green Bay at Minnesota, that's a huge, huge game. And then... They end with a home game against the Bears, uh, which won't mean anything to the Bears other than to the future, perhaps, of Justin Fields, but it could mean a lot to the Packers. So, I don't know. How do you look at the Packers right now? Do you still like them? Worried about them? What what are your feelings? I I think they need to get Jair Alexander back at cornerback. And, you know, I'm not saying this in a way to denigrate him at all. I, I just... You want him to get healthy so that he is able to play, you know, because that does add a different dimension to their defense. But also they got to solidify that run defense. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting last night, Peter, is you're watching it and you see the contrast in defense in a two minute drill, right, where a team needs is up by one and the other team needs a field goal in order to win. You saw what the Tennessee Titans were able to do with their front four and making things muddy and tough for Tua Tonga Vailoa. And that just did not happen on the other side of it. You know, on the other side of the TV, as I was watching it in multi-view, right? When you look at the giants and the Packers, the Packers just were not able to stop a nosebleed on that last drive, allowed Robinson to get open and Tommy DeVito throws him a great ball. And that allows them to get in the field goal range like that. So, I mean, it's, Interesting the way the Packers are playing right now in that you felt real good about Jordan Love coming into this game and what he'd been able to put together. Felt better about the defense with Green Bay and how they were kind of sort of able to solidify things. But last night was just not a good showing. And you got to kind of flush that and let's say, all right, let's just play well in the last quarter of the season. I know season's not technically quarters anymore because there's 17 games, but that's the way teams really think of it, right? The last four the last quarter of the season, let's play our best football, and then let's see what we can do in January. And I think the Packers are capable of doing that, but Jordan Love can't play another game like he played last night. Right, right. So, Tommy DeVito. You know, I, I, I have to say, when I went back and looked at the numbers this morning of the game that he played... I mean, I wasn't really all that impressed. But I look at the numbers and I say, 17 of 21? And he didn't turn it over? And he ran for 71 yards. He ran 
basically for, you know, a fifth of their total yards in this game. And that really makes Tommy DeVito a little bit different. That plus the fact that, and I'm going to say something really odd right now, Miles. I I mean, uh, this Tommy DeVito last night reminded me of Mary Beth King. Okay. Okay. So Mary Beth King is my daughter. Mm-hmm. For many of you who have read me for a while, you know that 20, let's see, 21, 22, 23 years ago, I wrote a lot in my column about my daughter's softball exploits. And we lived in New Jersey in the neighboring town to Cedar Grove. And Cedar Grove is where Tommy DeVito is from. It's 11 miles from uh, MetLife Stadium. And so when, when my daughter played softball in New Jersey, it was, it was a tough, tough game. She had a tough, tough, no-nonsense coach. She had to earn every pitch she threw. She got nothing handed to her. She, uh, there was a big competition on her high school team for who would be the pitcher. And when she was sophomore, the sophomore, she won it. But the thing is, she took pitching lessons in the off season, you know, and, and the, the pitcher, the pitching coach, no nonsense guy, uh, was the tie at the time, the coach at Seton hall. But anyway, she grew up understanding that this is a no excuse deal. This is, you got to be tough. No crying. No, you know, I mean, be tough. And to the point that one game, she gets a a one hop line drive that hits her right on the forehead. She goes out. Uh, And I think it's over. I think we're going to be taking her to the hospital. She just gets up, shakes it off and waves the coach off. I'm fine. I'm fine. And she keeps pitching. But, but anyway, so that, the reason that I'm I'm thinking about that when I'm watching, you know, and she never at these huge crowds at county tournament games, she's never cared. She never got nervous. Never. But anyway, and that's Tommy DeVito last night. And Tommy DeVito, I think, did not play a great football game, but he was really good when he had to be especially on that last drive, eight plays, 57 yards, winning field goal at the gun. That's what winning players do. And so you don't think he's great. You don't think he's wonderful. You don't, I I get it. I'm not sure I do either. Okay. But that is what it takes to be a really good player in the NFL. And I'm just going to tell you this. If Mitchell Trubisky had the nerve of Tommy DeVito, He'd be an okay NFL player. But the fact is, Mitchell Trubisky, I think, melts in big situations. Just melts. And, and you know, on Thursday night, nobody who watched that game Thursday night wants Mitchell Trubisky playing quarterback for him. That's all there is to it. But Tommy DeVito just has this jersey thing. And his whole thing is, I'm not afraid of anything. And that's what I thought of him last night. He, he's he got some stuff to him, you know? 
And it's kind of all those things. Like you don't know what it is, right? But uh, the thing we say, but he's got it. And whatever it is, you don't want to call it toughness, gumption, moxie, whatever word you want to use, it, it certainly is something that he has. Now, the Packers defense helped out there. They were not able to pressure him. And that's something that you do not expect against the New York football giants this year where they have not been able to protect anybody. I mean, they've been allowing sacks like nobody's business, but the Packers weren't able to get there to Tommy DeVito. They were not able to pressure him enough. And when you give a quarterback time, that's what's going to happen. He's going to be able to scan the field, make the right reads, you know, do the things that he needs to do with his legs. And I thought he made some really outstanding throws in big spots, right? The, the, the touchdown he had in the yeah. back right corner of the end yep. zone. That's a big throw. It's a great throw. You know, and as I mentioned, you yeah. know, on the, the two minute drive throw, he had Robinson great throw where it, the ball placement is such that receiver can catch and run. Right? That's something that I think is underrated at times from quarterbacks. Can you put the ball exactly in the right spot? And that's something that he did. So uh, who knows where it goes for Tommy DeVito, but it at least looks like he can play in this league, right? He's not overwhelmed by the moment, as you were alluding to there, Peter. He is somebody right. that you can feel comfortable if you have to turning the ball to him and saying, hey, just don't lose us the game. He's not doing that. He's not turning the ball over. That's a good thing. So we'll see what happens over these last few games with him. His last, his three-game winning streak for the Giants, Tommy DeVito showing immense the, the trust that Brian Dable put in him and, and having him keep the job instead of giving it to a pretty trusted veteran, Tyrod Taylor, who's healthy enough to play now. And this is what Tommy DeVito has done the last three games. Passer rating, 137.7, 103.9, 113.9. interceptions in those three games. Congratulations, Tommy DeVito. You, I didn't think you were very much, but man, you've got enough to have a good life in the National Football League. We are going to transition now to our guest this week, uh, Jake Browning, who's another one, like Tommy DeVito, undrafted free agent in the NFL. And all he's done the last two weeks against playoff-type foes, Jacksonville and Indianapolis, played great, has rating of 117 in the last two games, put up 68 points in those two games. We're going to come back after this break and you're going to hear from the new hero of the Queen City, Jake Brown. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So, Jake, you know, you basically burst on the scene on Monday Night Football against Jacksonville, and then you come out in week two and proved, for you anyway, improved it, it, it wasn't a fluke against uh, Indianapolis. You put up 34 points each game. 
has have you been even remotely surprised at what you've done passer rating of 117 in these two games i mean aren't you sitting there saying wow this is really happening uh i think there was a little bit of that uh naturally but you know i've i've always thought i was pretty good had a lot of confidence in myself i've had a lot of reps against our defense and scout team periods where you know i've kind of had numbers like that and you're not really supposed to do well in those periods so I had a lot of confidence from that, but you know, there's something to be said about doing it in an actual game when you're live and, and stuff like that. And so I think uh, getting that first, really that first touchdown drive in Jacksonville and then kind of felt like, all right, this is what that's supposed to feel like. And been building on that ever since. It was interesting in Jacksonville that Zach Taylor really seemed to just sort of let you go. He really was calling plays not to try to protect you. He was like calling downfield throws early on in that game. And I wondered, was that the plan all along to basically just let you, uh, you know, play like it would be just an absolutely normal game instead of trying to give you you know, sort of take baby steps to give you confidence in a, in a big game like that. Yeah, I think when you're playing a team like Jacksonville, you know, obviously they're a really good team. And so you have to play like that if you have any intention of winning the game. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of been my communication with them is, you know, call whatever plays are going to help us beat whoever we're playing. And I, I don't, I don't want to sit in the room on Monday and watch the film or Tuesday with the Monday night game, but, or the day after the game and say, oh, well, we just called this play to protect Jake. And, you know, we only put up 10 points, but at least we protected him. Like, give me a chance to go win or lose the game and uh, and give us the best opportunity to win it. So I think uh, Zach can maybe speak to his confidence in me, but I feel, you know, like we called the game the way we needed to in order to win. You know, I think a lot of people last year were surprised at how well Brock Purdy played early on with the 49ers. And I remember <clears throat> covering him early on and talking to him about what he felt was really significant and what had really helped him. And he said, you know, I played four years of college football. And I looked it up and... Obviously, he's in a Power 5 conference, just like you were. You were at Washington, Brock Purdy at uh, Iowa State. He started 46 games. I think you started 54 games. And <laughs> and yet, Brock Purdy's the last pick in the draft. You're undrafted. Do you think sometimes the football establishment doesn't really respect guys who've played a lot of football in college. I mean, I think there's definitely some of that. Uh, you feel like you've probably uh, put myself in a scout shoes. You probably feel like you've seen the guy plateau versus the guy that comes onto the scene for one year and has this incredible season. And, and uh, you know, there's no, there's not really enough tape to find all of his flaws. Uh, but, but that being said, you know, my situation is a little bit different than Brock Purdy. I forget. I think this is only Brock's second or third year. And, you know, I've been in the NFL for a while. Right. So I'm second. A, yeah. Yeah. So I'm a much different player 
than I was coming out of college. And so I think coming out of college, going undrafted, uh, you know, there's that balance of like, obviously I need to get better. I've been cut and on P squads, but, you know, still having that confidence of once I do figure out what I need to get better at, like I've, I've never had a work ethic problem or, or anything like that. And so it will work itself out and just sticking at it. But uh, I, I really think that's where I, I'm at where I'm at is, yeah, I had the experience of playing and I matched that with basically getting a bunch of redshirt years and continuing to improve. And I'm kind of reaping the benefits of that. Tell me, you were in Minnesota for what, two years on the practice squad mostly? Yeah, two years in a preseason all on practice squad. Yeah. Yeah, and then you went to Cincinnati uh, before the 21 season uh, on the practice squad. Can you tell me just a little bit about what you think the benefit to you was to have been on practice squads, to actually be in NFL buildings for a long time and never really kind of face the fire of a regular season game? Yeah, I mean, I think there were some different circumstances that happened. You know, COVID obviously does not help someone like myself with no preseason. And I think in three preseasons in Minnesota, I, I played like a total of like three or four quarters of football. And so I just hadn't really played in a long time. Um, but, but back to your question of being in the room, you know, I, I made sure that I got the most out of those uh, meetings and, and on-field practice and having the balance of, you know, learning from Kirk and Joe, kind of learning what they did well, mistakes they made, and learning from learning through them, while also focusing on my own development of my own skills and and really taking my uh, scout team rep seriously, uh, keeping track of, like, completion percentage and stuff like that, um, to make sure that I was getting the most out of the situation I was in. And so I think uh, being able to stay engaged and, and actively be involved in the meetings and then doing the extra work in the weight room and, and after practice getting the throws that I need to feel like I'm continuing to improve as well was, was really valuable. And, and I, I wouldn't wish four years of no football on anybody, but uh, you know, I, I think it, it's worked out and uh, or has worked out so far. It has still only been three games, so I guess we'll see. But uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with where I'm at. Can you take me into one or two things you might have learned from Kirk Cousins and now one or two things you might have learned from Joe Burrow that you believe have really helped you as a quarterback? Yeah, I would say from Kirk, it was just uh, basically how to be a pro. Um, Coming straight out of college, I was with him and Sean Mannion, who had both been in the NFL for a little while at that point. Uh, both super smart. I just saw how they studied, you know, how Kirk took care of his body and how well he played from the pocket and how important it was to play on time um, and play accurate. And so this realizing that there's a huge premium put on that in the NFL and watch him play at a very high level doing that. And then coming to the Bengals, you know, I got to watch Joe who moves around a little bit more kind of like I, I do and how he incorporated that into his game and his ability to take everything that's going on and really narrow down the focus of like, all right, here's what I, here's my job. 
Like if whatever run play doesn't work, whatever play, you know, something happens, you know, really being able to isolate, here's what I'm responsible for. Here's what I need to do to get better. And the stuff outside of that, you know, it's not taking the, uh, the fault and blame for stuff outside of your control. You know, maybe within the media you do, but then just for your own sanity, you know, I felt like in college, whenever, you know, maybe I threw a good ball and it got dropped, you know, and you start thinking, well, here's what I could have done to make it better. When really at the end of the day, it got dropped and just move on. And it's not really, it's outside of your control. And so I thought I learned a really valuable lesson there from Joe, just kind of how he operates and, and not really, I don't think either one of those guys felt any pressure to act like something outside of their own personality, uh, which is nice for me because I don't know if I'm even capable of that. So really enjoyed my time with Kirk, <laughs> keep in touch with him. Uh, and obviously Joe and I have a great relationship too. So it's been very valuable. My one story that I like to tell people about Joe Burrow, I went to Ohio University and Joe is from, Ath grew up in Athens, Ohio, which is, you know, whatever, yeah. three hours from Cincinnati, his dad coached there. But anyway, uh, so I said to his dad early on, who I got to know a little bit, I said, hey, listen, I really like to write something long and, you know, really a little bit intuitive and, and inside about Joe, uh, what's your advice? And he just said, well, he goes, if you can't help him beat Kansas city, he's really not interested. <laughs> and I just, I thought, I love that. I really did love that. I wasn't mad yeah. at it. I just said, he, he keeps the important thing, the important thing, <laughs> you know, this isn't, he's not in this for PR you know, he's not, you know, he's wants to, he wants to win a Super Bowl. He wants, you know, he wants to win a game this Sunday, all the rest yeah. of the stuff. Yeah, that's fine. But that's kind of what I appreciate about him. <laughs> yeah, he definitely does a good job of, uh, I think there's always been, at least the last two years for sure, there's been a lot of media circus around him and, and watching him navigate. That was definitely valuable for me. Jake, I want to ask you two other things, two quick things in the time we have left. Number one, in the game against Jacksonville, you know, your stats in that game are otherworldly. You're 32 of 37. I mean, I'm sure it's one of the best games you've played at any level of football. What, take me into your mindset. It's Monday night football. Honestly, the Bengals playoff hopes, if there are any, they're on the line in that game. You got to win that game. There has to be a lot on your shoulders going into that game. Nobody expects you guys to win, all that. How did you enter that game mentally? I mean, I expected to win. I thought <laughs> I, I thought 10-point underdogs was kind of ridiculous. Um, but, I mean, I get it. And uh, I think for me it was – all that that you said and but I'm pretty busy with meetings and and practice and walkthroughs and preparing that and I'm not I'm not really reading into a ton of that stuff I just kind of know that I'm on a good team we got a good defense got a good old line good receivers there's some parts around me where if I just do my job we're gonna be able to put up some points and really I can't do anything outside of my control like I said that that Joe does a great job of of focusing on and so I just studied hard 
uh, knew my reads, tried to get through them quickly and just stay in the moment and not really care if it was, you know, ups or downs, if we're down, if we're up, what, what the momentum is of the game and just kind of tune out from all that stuff and just focus on my job. I think that's the best way for sanity. Last thing I would ask you, as a guy who was on practice squads, who was behind the scene, who was on the bench for so long, did you ever think, man, I am never going to get my shot? I think the hardest year to make it through was COVID. And, you know, you're getting cut at the end of August, and they said, hey, you know, this was basically a decision made in July. You had a great camp, but, you know, you're going to be on practice squad. And uh, the other guy didn't lose the job. And so you go through basically three off seasons of going into camp, knowing that this guy needs to lose the job in order for you to get it. And then all three of them, you know, they don't lose it. And they tell you, Hey, you had a great camp. You, you're continuing to get better. Very positive. And, you know, I, I yeah, you start to have that, uh, that creep into your head a little bit, but I mean, what's, what's really the alternative you're going to just go quit and not play football. Like I was still in the NFL. I still, you know, there was not a single week of NFL football that I wasn't on a roster for. Uh, it wasn't like I was hanging out at home or anything like that. Like I was still right in the thick of it. And uh, and I, I just had, you kind of got to keep the faith that something's going to shake out. Something's going to happen if you just keep at it long enough. And, uh, and fortunately it did. I know it doesn't for a lot of people, but, you know, I, I, I didn't really see an alternative that, you know, I'd, be 50 years old with kids and kind of look in the mirror and be like, man, I just basically quit on myself and didn't double down on it. And I think, you know, that that would be a hard reality to be able to cope with. And so I think, uh, you know, I think something I was always taught growing up was, you know, the, the worst thing to see is someone not fulfill their potential. Everybody's got different potentials and uh, you know, different ceilings of what they can achieve athletically or whatever. And so for me, it was just, you know, let's see where the ceiling is and just continue to try and fulfill my potential. And uh, I think that kind of kept me at it for a long time. And, and having that perspective of down the road, at some point football is going to be over and be able to look in the mirror and say, okay, I, I went through the thick of it. I kept my head down and kept working at it. And whether it worked out or not, like at least I got that peace of mind. It'll be pretty cool to see your old friends from the Vikings come to Cincinnati on Saturday in what is a huge game for both teams. And Jake Browning, I wish you luck there, and I wish you luck the rest of this year and in all your years. Uh, Stories like yours are what make jobs like mine a lot of fun. Good good luck. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me on. My thanks to Jake Browning for his time in a busy week. And by the way, a short week, because uh, as we discussed uh, briefly in my conversation, you know, they got to play Saturday at 1 p.m. And I was a little dubious about whether the Bengals would make some time for him. And I appreciate uh, the Bengals and their PR staff and uh, Jake Browning for giving us a little bit of time in an absolutely packed week for him. So, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit um, in part two of the pod, um, Miles, about what that game in, at Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday meant for Kansas City. 
And I have this feeling about it, and it's inescapable. I was thinking it when I saw Patrick Mahomes go bat crap after the game, and I would bet, I I I would bet that even though he didn't look angry, that that's the angriest Andy Reid has ever been at a post game press conference in all his years as a head coach in the NFL. He is totally, absolutely measured in everything that he says to the media when he gets in yes. front of the cameras. Yes. And it was, to me, it was amazing that he, and I think he's going to get fined, and I don't think he minds it really. Um, but, but and, and, and I mean, he didn't kill him, but he just basically said that was an embarrassment to the NFL. These officials did a bad job. So... I do think he's going to get fined. I think Mahomes is going to get fined too. And I think they deserve to get fined. And, you know, I don't want to relitigate the penalty. I think it was a penalty. I think it should have been flagged. Whatever the little off-the-record gentlemen's agreements between coaches and players and, and officials, whatever it is, that guy was offside by a lot. Yeah. And Andy Reid said, well, he was offside by an inch or two. No, he wasn't. He was offside by, I, I would say, nearly a foot. But I don't, I don't know how much he was offside. He was absolutely offside. And I think you got to make that call. Now, having said all that, let's put that aside for a moment. And I'll give you my little psychological theory on the bat crap-ism of Patrick Mahomes, both at the time and after this game. Although I must say, Mahomes was, I thought was good and fairly mature for a guy who was seething after the game when he met the press. But all that, be that as it may, I'll just say this. I think that this is a buildup of what this year has been in Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes has never had to play with a bunch of and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're bad football players. I'm saying that a lot of them are football players performing poorly, consistently poorly. You now see why the New York Giants handed Kadarius Toney to Kansas City last year, uh, you know, before the trade deadline. Um, I mean, Kadarius Toney is a talent, but he's got some numbskull tendencies. He just does. And he just makes too many mistakes. If I were Andy Reid, it'd be hard for me to play this guy. Just would. He drops the ball. He makes huge errors like on the offside play. But anyway, I think this was an accumulation of things for Mahomes as to why he went crazy. How did you see their reaction? Normally cool, calm, collected, nice guys, all that stuff. How did you see Reed and Mahomes uh, after this game? Well, particularly with Mahomes, it felt like misplaced aggression, right? Where, you know, oh my gosh, it's a terrible call. I'm going after yep. the refs. It's a terrible call. I, I can't believe this. I'm so angry at the refs and it's this and it's that. Like, you can be angry. I understand. I mean, as you pointed out in your column, Peter, this is had been one of the most rare 
fouls called over the last two years. I mean, combination of three in the last two years. Now we've had 12 this season in part because of the tush push brotherly shove, whatever you want to call it. But when it's that rare that it's only called three times in two years, and then now all of a sudden it's something that's called in one of the biggest moments of the game. There's a part of me that understands why Mahomes would react like that when every week, as we saw documented in the quarterback show, he puts so much time and so much effort into making himself the best he can be so he can be as best he can for his teammates. And he knows how hard everybody else works and da 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 I'm kind of excuse-making for Mahomes, and I'm okay with that because I think he's a great player. But at that point, when something like that happens, and it co- and in your mind, it kind of costs you the game, I understand why, given all of the other things that have gone on over the course of this season, Mahomes explodes. It's just not something that we've seen from him, and this is not the kind of ball that we've seen from the Kansas City Chiefs since he's been the starter since 2018. I mean, when do we see the Chiefs make these kinds of mistakes on detail things, right? That team is so detail-oriented. Yeah. It's one of the last teams I expect yeah. to see having an illegal formation penalty. But I'll tell you, Peter, when that play started and I saw the flag go up in the air, first thing I said to myself was, I bet it's an illegal formation. And lo and behold, it kind of was, kind of wasn't, whatever you want to call it. But when he says, the official says offside, I'm like, oh, wow, it's a defensive penalty on the offense. It's not a defensive penalty. Oh, wow. That crazy play that we just saw is not going to count because Kadarius Tony and the most boneheaded preventable thing that you can do was offside. Yes, he was in right. front of the freaking ball. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like, you don't expect that kind of thing that is a detail-oriented thing with an Andy Reid team. You don't expect to see that. And so this receiving core that is unreliable, this is who the Chiefs are now. I don't know what it is that they can do to be better except give playing time to different guys. But at a certain point, the folks who have been unreliable, if the Chiefs are in a critical moment in the postseason, they're going to have to make a play. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I, I think this might be one of the shortest stays in January football that we've ever seen from Patrick Mahomes. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Yeah, it's really the one thing about Kansas City right now, if you think about it. So last six games, they're two and four. Mahomes, eight touchdown passes, five interceptions. So just think, they're two and four. Mahomes has been pretty average. 
in the last month and a half. But I want you to think about this, Miles. As of right now, even though it's probably a long shot, a real long shot, I think Steve Kornacki has the odds of 11% that they can win home field. The reason they're not out of home field is that look at the rest of the AFC. Right. I mean, if Tyreek Hill misses time for Miami, you saw that in the game. We didn't talk much about where this left Miami. But honestly, if Tyreek Hill misses a lot of time, Miami's not the same team. They're just not. Yes. So yes. if his ankle is a problem or if anything happens to him down the stretch, it's a problem. And I want you to look at Miami's last three games. They're going to beat the Jets on Sunday. Look at their last three games. Dallas at home, at Baltimore, Buffalo at home. I mean, they could go 3-0. and They could go 0-3. They could go 1-2. and I, I don't know. But yeah. every one of those games is losable. And just remember one thing. The Miami Dolphins are going to get to Christmas weekend of this season with either nine or 10 wins, having never beaten in those nine or 10 games, a team with a winning record. So do we really know who the Miami Dolphins are? But anyway, anyway, I just, I, I, I don't want to get on a riff about that. I did want to say that, so the Baltimore Ravens right now uh, are the team that has the edge for home field. But I mean, you look at the Ravens, they're 10 and three next two weeks at Jacksonville at San Francisco, and then they got Miami at home. And then they got their arch rivals, the Steelers, who might stink, but it's the Steelers. It's just, I just will look at this right now in the AFC and say, I understand everybody says, oh, the Chiefs are out of it. (laughs) Look at the rest of the AFC. It's not like you got the 27 Yankees in there. So so (laughs) we'll, we'll see what happens. Miles. Miles, I want to get into this for a little chunk of time, you know, as we sort of reach the home stretch of the pod this week. So I kept thinking watching the games over the weekend that look at all the players who are winning games in the NFL right now. Quarterbacks who are playing winning football, okay? And let's just look at it this weekend. Bailey Zappi, 137th pick in the draft uh, for the Patriots uh, uh, in 22. Uh, He played a good game at Pittsburgh and won a big road game, even though the Patriots aren't playing for anything. Jake Browning, undrafted free agent on his second team. He's played great the last two weeks. Tommy DeVito, undrafted free agent, New York Giants. You know, we talked about him three straight 100 rating games in three straight wins for a team that we all thought had totally mailed it in. Nick Mullins, even though he didn't play great down the stretch in Vegas, he leads a victory in Vegas. And then obviously Brock Purdy, the last pick in the draft in 2022, might be the MVP of the NFL right now. And and on the other side, on the other side, of all the quarterbacks who won over the weekend, this is going to sound weird, but there's only two of them 
of 14, two winning quarterbacks out of 14, who were top 10 picks uh, and are playing with their original team. <clears throat> and that's Zach Wilson, who is probably not going to be playing with his original team much longer, and Josh Allen. So, Miles, my feeling, and it's a very, very simple feeling, is that if you look at how we judge quarterbacks every March, every April, every year, you know what we're looking for? We're looking for the new, bright, shiny object. We're looking for Caleb Williams. We're looking for Drake May. That's, and it's understandable. You want the best guy. You want to get in position. But to me, one of the things NFL teams fail to do over and over and over again is look and see what really happens when games are played in the NFL. Who actually plays well? Who actually wins these games? And much more often than not, it's the down-the-line guys. I don't know. It's a pet peeve I have that when we look at quarterbacks, it's like Caleb Williams or bust. And I think it's insane. Insane. Anyway, just a thought. Well, I think you, you make a point. I don't know if I entirely agree with it, though. Because, I mean, if we look at the last... Let's go back to, I don't know, 2019, right? or even 2018, you know, and you're like, who are the quarterbacks that have won the Super Bowl? And this is probably being a little too simplistic, but you've got Tom Brady, you know, obviously six round pick Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady on another team. Then you have Matthew Stafford and then Patrick Mahomes again. So there it's an inexact science, but when you look at the guys that win, you know, Matthew Stafford's the number one overall pick. Rams go out, they trade for him, and boom, they're in. But that is such a, I, but that's, so Burrow, that's a, that's a tiny, yeah, that's Joe a Burrow, tiny sample pick. size. It is. Yeah, it is. You're right but, about that. But Joe Burrow's hurt right now. And Jake Browning for two weeks in a row has put up exactly, he put up maybe better right. numbers than Burwood. 32 out of 37 at Jacksonville. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. that guys at the top of the draft aren't, many of them aren't going to be great. All I'm saying is that stop making that the holy grail of quarterback prospecting. It, it is an inexact science, especially when you look at what Bryce Young is doing this year. And so to me, it's not just about, okay, do you get that guy, but do you put him in a favorable situation? And so that's why when you look at what Jake Browning's doing, I mean, Cincinnati's a good team. They have constructed a good team yep. around Joe Burrow so that he can succeed, which is why you have Jake Browning, who has been in that building, who has understood the offense and what the nuances are of it, who has practiced with those receivers because Joe Burrow was hurt during training camp. Uh, that it allows the situation to be what it is. I mean, it is, it's an inexact science, right? I mean, Joe freaking Flacco comes off the street and he's played well for the Browns <laughs> over the last couple of weeks in part because really the Browns well, have I set think. up. Yeah. Well, he's got to stop turning the ball over, but the, the, in part that is because the Browns have a good situation for him, right? So if the situation is good for the quarterback, that's going to help the quarterback. I mean, Brock Purdy, and I don't mean this, in a way to take away from what Brock Purdy is doing, because other than Matt Ryan, we've never seen a quarterback run Kyle Shanahan's system as well as Brock Purdy. 
But Brock Purdy is in a fantastic situation, is he not? He's got Trent Williams as his left tackle. He's got McCaffrey, got Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, you know, George Kittle, la, la, la. And he's got Kyle Shanahan calling his plays. But I think so much about what a quarterback can do is his environment. You know, again, Bryce Young, one of the worst environments that a quarterback yeah. could be in right now. And that's why he, that's a big part of why he's not playing very well. You know, he's got a left tackle that is basically a turnstile. It's not good, okay? The offensive line is terrible, and he doesn't have receivers that can separate. You look at C.J. Stroud. They put him in a much better situation. He's got a better offensive line, better offensive scheme, had receivers. Unfortunately, a couple of them gotten hurt who can make plays. So it's not just about draft status. It's about the situation. And so if you are Chicago or whatever other team, you know, at the top of the draft, and you say, man, Caleb Williams is the bright, shiny object, can we put him in a favorable situation? And did Chicago put Justin Fields in a favorable situation over the last however many years since he's been there, right? Those are the kinds of questions that you need to be able to ask and answer because if you can, if you have the quarterback that's great, but the rest of the team is crap around him, <laughs> then you're still going to have a crap team. I am really kind of I, – I, I was telling this to uh, a team executive yesterday when I w- – I've made a few calls about this, my theory, asking yeah. what people think. You know what's funny? Most people think, kind of like you do, that it's a little crazy – most people think that if you've got the chance to go get a good quarterback high in the draft, you've got to do everything in your power to do that. I guess, I mean, I really disagree with that. But, like, if I were the Bears right now, unless Justin Field totally craps the bed over the last four weeks, I would use that first pick in the draft and trade it for three ones. I just would. But but be all that as it may, I was talking to somebody and I was telling the story of in training camp, I spent 20 minutes with uh, Bryce Young. I don't know Bryce Young. Um, I don't really watch college football that much, but that day in practice, he was the commandant of that offense in practice the day I saw. He was the boss. And I was really impressed with what I saw mentally and And, you know, he had a good day in practice, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, and I said, and this guy who I saw looked so impressive, I said, he's going to get beaten down by what David Tepper hath wrought and what this team has put around him. And he's going to get ruined. He'll get ruined. And he'll have to go somewhere else to have a chance. But will he still be in one piece? when he gets that chance. And that's that's the sad part of it. And Miles, that is why, that's absolutely why I don't think you ought to sell your soul for a quarterback. And look, there are some times, like, you know, when Cincinnati knew it had some good pieces and they turned down a gigantic offer from Miami. I mean, who knows what exactly it was. I, I was told, I mean, they would have paid a ransom to go up and get Joe Burrow. The Dan Marino was telling everybody inside that team, get Joe Burrow. You got to do everything that you do, all that stuff. So I don't know what Chris Greer, the GM, ended up offering, but it was a lot. But my whole point is, 
I get when you want to do that, but when Cincinnati drafted Burrow, they had some good pieces in place, some very good pieces. And then, obviously, they went out and got Jamar Chase the next year. So this is a very good team. However, however, not every team is in position to be able to do that. And that's why, to me, I want to build up my team around them uh, first. I want to build up my team first before I put a quarterback in a position of potential ruination. So that's just, that's a big part of why I feel the way I feel about this story. Yeah. And I I think that makes sense. But I I would also say that when you get a Joe Burrow, it's a franchise changing guy, right? That's a franchise changing prospect. And frankly, I mean, and I don't, I'm not a draft Nick and I don't watch that much college football, but I don't know that anybody was rating Bryce Young as that kind of franchise changing guy. So that also is the difference, right? I mean, and I, I watched it personally day-to-day with Jared Goff in 2016. The Rams trade up for him. They did not have a good offensive line. They did not have a good offensive scheme. And it's like, man, what's going to go on with this guy? Is this guy somebody that can really play at the NFL level? They bring in Sean McVay in 2017, and the whole thing takes off, right? You get Andrew Whitworth in there as a free agent, and he stabilizes your line as a left tackle. You get Robert Woods in there as a wide receiver. You bring in Cooper Cup. You know, it, it, these things can change quickly if you build the team up around the quarterback in the right way, which is why I don't think all hope is lost for the Carolina Panthers. They have to do a lot of right things right. in the offseason, but that's part of why when you can get the quarterback, you do get the quarterback, but you also have to do the things around the quarterback in order to make it a favorable situation. Miles, it's, uh, it's something, in my opinion, for another day and maybe, like if I were, if I were still working at Sports Illustrated, I would say to my editor, I want a month to talk to 50 people about this topic. And I want to find out where we are exactly right now in quarterback draft, uh, scouting, drafting, development, and patience. You know, Jake Browning in that podcast we talked about, he doesn't think there's any way that if he had to play right away, that he would be the same guy that, you know, he, yeah. he's grateful. Not, he didn't want to sit for four years. Like you, sure. you heard him talk about, but I think he's pretty grateful for having been able to work with Kirk cousins first, when he was on the practice squad of the Vikings and Joe Burrow second, when he was on the practice squad of the Bengals learned a lot from both those guys. And that's why I think overall, my whole point, and I'll just leave you with this. So I know we got to go. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution at quarterback in the NFL today. Yes. Way too often, what I start reading every September is, well, the Bears, they got to get in position to draft, fill in the blank, whoever the next savior is at quarterback. And I just, I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it because it is is wrong capital w capital r capital o capital n capital g that's that's where i'll leave it anyway so hey miles thanks so much for joining me this week i appreciate it this was really this was a fun podcast for me to do because not only this episode not only i think introduces people 
to who in the world Jake Browning is. Uh, and he's another guy on the NFL landscape. You should know who he is. It's not only introducing who he is, but to have a, a decent discussion about what you actually should do instead of selling the farm all the time to try to get in position to take one of these guys. We hit on Mahomes. We hit on the bizarro two-in-one-point games in Monday Night Football. And now we head into a new week where, Miles, who would have ever thought this when the NFL not only flexed the Patriots and the uh, Kansas City Chiefs out of a primetime game, but they didn't even flex them into a Sunday afternoon doubleheader game. They flexed them to Sunday at 1 p.m. Yep. where the, the the lesser games are, you know. And it's it's amazing that that game right now, for a lot of different reasons, might just be the game of the weekend in the NFL because it's, you know, we're all fascinated with what's going to happen with Kansas City. And that's a game I'm going to have a very, very close eye on Sunday in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Kansas City, by the way, with a one-game lead over the Denver Broncos in the AFC West. To me, Kansas City, New England, bizarro world game of the week in the NFL. Miles Simmons, thanks so much for joining me this week on the podcast and for joining me every week. Thank you. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to this episode of the Peter King Podcast. We'll be back again next week. And I hope it's as fun next week. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last Crunchberry. No! No one steals my Crunchberries. I think you mean my Crunchberries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Captain Crunch. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.